I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. We're going to be talking about suicide in this episode. If that's upsetting to you, please take care while listening. Previously on Bloodlines. Can you imagine a world in which there is no horse racing? Oh, yeah, and I think I think they're starting to imagine it, and they better start worrying about it because they're close to being out of business. You know, when something happens, I'm the one they call. They go, Bob, what the hell's going on out there? They don't just lay down quietly. It's a relief when they lay still. I could literally probably cry if I kept talking about it just to know that that horse did that for no other reason then that's because what was in his blood. For the longest time, whenever I'd think about horse racing, I'd think about Kentucky, Churchill Downs, rolling green fields that are home to some of the most beautiful and fastest animals on the planet, the little country store out by the breeding farms. And then for most of the past year, when I thought about horse racing, I thought about Southern California, Santa Anita and the dead horses there, the protesters, all those people working on the backside, waiting to hear if their track is going to be shut down. But it turns out, if you really want to understand what is going on in horse racing right now, you got to go east. You also have to go back in time about 70 years. Obviously, we can't do that. So we did the next best thing. Earlier this year, I flew to New York City, rented a car, and drove up to New Canaan, Connecticut with my producers, Jess and Courtney. We were going to interview one of the surviving members of one of the richest families in American history, Alfred Vanderbilt. Range Rover Benz, Range Rover Benz, Range Rover Benz. All right, this is, I mean, one of these big mansions. We pulled into the parking lot, and I swear to God I thought the GPS was wrong. We expected an estate. I wore a tie. Instead, Alfred lives in a condo, one of a dozen or so that all look exactly the same. Dude, you got some cool stuff hanging around. Is that the Kentucky Derby trophy? No, 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 this is uh, coaching my grandfather. That's him. Inside, it was exactly what you'd expect, a real corporate housing vibe. Except, of course, for the enormous oil paintings that were way too big for the space. It's funny. Do you ever feel like the painting's looking at you? Um, sure. I, I took one down because it did. <laughs> what? Which one did you take down? The Commodore. Commodore Vanderbilt. I've got one of him that his, his eyes follow you wherever you go, and, and he doesn't look really happy about whatever it is you're doing. There are old silver and gold racing trophies displayed all around the room. Alfred's dad owned one of America's most dominant racing stables, at the moment when it was the country's most popular sport. He was racing royalty. He would have uh, softball games. His stable hands would play the stable hands from the Whitney stable. Or he was uh, an investor in Broadway shows, and so one of the first games like this that I remember was the uh, cast of West Side Story playing his stable hands. And it was kind of, I mean, it, it doesn't seem what to make any sense. What world is this? This yeah. is crazy town. <laughs> it, was, it, it is now. But, you know, then uh, it was sort of a great way to, for, for, the, for the stable hands to have a day off and to go out and enjoy themselves. And they got to go to the Vanderbilt Mansion and swim in the pool and, and, and meet Broadway stars. And for the Broadway people, the, the hoofers and the dancers and everybody else, it was great to go out to the Vanderbilt Estate and, and meet racing people. It was exciting. For the 1%, owning a stable of racing horses ranked somewhere below owning a bank, but definitely above a sleek racing clipper or a private island. Horses were the way a wealthy family played. You know, Louis Chary, a Frenchman from the Alsace region of France, came to work for my father in 19... 
31, I think, about 31 or 32, and opened the door for the President of the United States and for uh, George Gershwin and for, uh, uh, you know, hundreds of celebrities. And, and he established relationships with them. So people would come to my father's house and they would say, God, you know, Alfred and Jean are just so great. There's this butler named Louie. <laughs> and they would often go back to see Louie because he was, he was his own sort of center of, of celebrity. You're describing a world that really doesn't exist anymore. Louie owned horses. <laughs> what? <laughs> you know you're rich when the butler owns horses. Of all the thoroughbreds Alfred's dad owned, the greatest was a horse named Native Dancer. The papers called him the Gray Ghost. He once ran a quarter of a mile only five seconds slower than a 1953 Corvette. The next day, a newspaper writer said, that is as fast as horses travel. In 1946, there were something like 6,000 TV sets in the nation. By the end of the 50s, uh, half of the national homes had TV sets. And that's exactly when Native Dancer ran. So all of those sets were tuned to something. There were only three networks. In fact, there were kind of two and a half, really. And, uh, and Native Dancer was the star of that television burst era. In 1953, Native Dancer entered the Kentucky Derby as the winner of all 11 of his races, an overwhelming favorite, and one of the country's first television media darlings. At the first turn of the Derby, another horse slammed into him and both knocked him off balance and blocked him in. Most of the time, that's it. But instead of quitting, he simply ran around the other horses, covering more ground than any other animal in the race. He entered the stretch run just two lengths behind, but he ran out of gas. Not even Native Dancer could make up that much ground. He came up one head short. Racing fans consider him the best horse to lose the Kentucky Derby. And for most people, that's all he is. A famous old horse. A photograph on a tavern wall. But for Alfred, Native Dancer was more than that. He was his father's prized possession. Do you ever get the sense that your dad or Mr. Whitney or people like looked at you guys like horses? <laughs> if only they had. <laughs> I think they would have treated us a lot better. <laughs> Native dancer had an air conditioned stall. I didn't. <laughs> Did you ever ask him, where's my air conditioner? Absolutely. And what was the answer? Yeah, he said, you, you win races like that, I'll get you one. <laughs> <laughs> Alfred, that's fucked up. <laughs> Horse racing as we know it today really began in America after the Civil War. But it didn't really take off until after the First World War. By 1950, it was the most popular sport in the country, as big as pro football is today. And it was dominated by two families— Alfred's family, the Vanderbilts, and another family you probably never heard of, the Woodwards. Each of those families owned a famous horse. The Vanderbilts owned Native Dancer. The Woodwards owned Nashua. I don't think it's a stretch to say you can draw a straight line from the dead horses at Santa Anita right back to those two champions. Nashua would change the financing of the sport forever. And Native Dancer still lives on in the DNA of nearly every thoroughbred alive. The business and the blood. The crisis of modern horse racing has to do with the relationship between those two things, more than the track or the drugs or any other single factor. And that crisis was born, if we want to put an even finer point on it, in 1955, when the Woodward dynasty came to an end and the whole idea of the American aristocracy began to crumble, and thoroughbred racing changed forever. I'm Wright Thompson, and this is Bloodlines. Episode 2, Inheritance. Let's start at the beginning, just after the Civil War. 
War has always been great for business. In a century and a half before companies like Halliburton made a fortune in Iraq and Afghanistan, there were a lot of New York families who got very, very rich while America tore itself apart. Some of them snapped up cheap land in the war-ravaged South and then used that land to build universities named after themselves, like the Duke and Vanderbilt families, who both lived on the east side of Manhattan. Others turned that newly acquired land into big estates dedicated to horse breeding and racing. Basically, in my research, anyone who has you know, a street or an avenue or a museum named after them in, in Manhattan was involved in thoroughbred breedings. That's Brian Terrell. He's a visiting assistant professor of history and environmental studies at Reed College, and he spent his career studying the relationships between humans and animals. And this was a time where they were, you know, buying up European artworks, marrying their their children into European aristocratic families. Why were they doing um, those things? They were emerging. They, they were stepping out on, on the international stage as equals. You know, this is a period where American manufacturing is, is producing extraordinary wealth. And they're, um, they're, they're trying to put themselves on par with Europeans. Brian says that you can use the thoroughbred horse as a way to see the relationship between things like globalization and race and class. His paper, Bread for the Race, breaks down how wealthy American families in the early 1900s used horses to feel better about their place in the world. By not having a titular aristocracy, there was always the, the specter that um, these people could lose their status. So by possessing a horse with this, this pedigree, they're sort of um, enhancing their own status. So if you could buy a horse that connects to, to this, this history of, of ancient civilization, that was an exciting prospect. They wanted a family crest and a straight paternal line to William the Conqueror. Anything to not feel like new money colonial trash. They couldn't change their family name, so they searched for permanence in the same place as those English country gentry they idolized, in stables of horses whose pedigrees could be traced back centuries. I mean, I think, again, what, what you're seeing is people telling stories through their horses about themselves. One such family was the Woodwards, who, as far as I can tell, embody the dark underbelly of American striving about as much as any family I've ever read about. Well, you know, I had just come to New York. I was a newcomer. And truthfully, uh, my editor at the Times, when I told him about it, he said, that's a hell of a story. And I thought, yeah, that's why I keep telling people this story. That's Susan Brody. She spent a decade reporting her book, This Crazy Thing Called Love, which is the definitive account of the Woodward family. Here's the story she tells. The Woodwards made their money selling cotton for Confederate Army uniforms then turned that wealth into control of the Hanover Bank and also bought a thoroughbred horse farm in Maryland called Bel Air Stud. By 1900, the patriarch, William Woodward, had parlayed his status into a position working for the U.S. ambassador in London. William's life there was surrounded by the kind of British aristocracy his family so envied. He went shooting on ancient estates. He went to private dinner parties at Buckingham Palace. He became an intimate friend of, of the future King Edward VII, and they went to many horse races together. The English Epsom Derby was the most famous of those races. Sitting at Epsom Downs, southwest of London, William was finally face-to-face -face with the dream he'd held since he was a boy. He wanted to breed a horse that could come back here and beat these men and all of their horses. Nearly every decision he'd make for the rest of his life was about that mission. His whole life was, you know, figuring out the ears and the bloodlines and the, and the speed and the temperament of horses, and he was breeding them. He studied pedigrees. He made bids on horses all over the world. He just spent all his time trying to figure out how to breed a horse that would be the fastest horse in the world and would win an English Derby. In 1910, William Woodward inherited his family's bank and horse farm, Bel Air Stud. He didn't care much about the bank, but he spent every waking minute thinking about Bel Air. It functioned like a royal palace. He even had a flag raised when a member of the family was in residence, like the queen at Windsor Castle. 
but the horses could only take him so far. With his new money background, he needed to find a wife with the right family tree. That's when he met Elsie Kreider. She was from a socially prominent family who lost a fortune just as quickly as the Woodwards had gained one. William Woodward realized this would be the final thing that would uh, put him over the top with society because he had the money and she had the background. Woodward kept breeding his horses, and although they already had four daughters, in 1920, Elsie finally gave him an heir. He cabled friends and associates with the news. Fine colt born this morning. In thoroughbred racing, both the legend and financial value of a horse is based on his or her bloodline. It's pedigree, as it's called. The ability to trace a horse's lineage back generations to one of three original horses is what gives a thoroughbred its value. Without that, there's no myth. And without a myth, there is no sport of kings. It's just animals running in circles with tiny people on their backs. The entire enterprise is based on the blood of these animals being curated, protected, and documented. In America, that document is called the Stud Book, which is just a fancy name for a genealogy of every thoroughbred who has ever raced here. A horse with any non-thoroughbred blood, tougher animals like a quarter horse or a Clydesdale, cannot be in the book and therefore cannot participate in a thoroughbred race. Until World War I, the best breeders and the best blood in the world were in Europe. Without that continental destruction, Kentucky might never have become the center of the racing world. But men like Mr. Woodward smartly took advantage of the chaos. In 1925, William and his partners bought a horse named Sir Galahad III from a breeder in France. He kept Sir Galahad at his friend Arthur Hancock's Claiborne Farm in Kentucky. Sir Galahad sired Gallant Fox. This is Gallant Fox by Sir Galahad III. Gallant Fox won the Kentucky Derby, the Preakness, and the Belmont. It was such a huge feat that it needed a name. They called it the Triple Crown. And so Gallant Fox and Earl Sandy went to the winner's circle for the blanket of roses and the famous Kentucky Derby Cup. Gallant Fox sired Omaha, who also won the Triple Crown. Five years later, the genes of Gallant Fox returned in his son Omaha. They remain the only father and son to win all three American classic races. Just a strong six-length victory to set the stage for the Triple Crown. The Belmont was to take place four weeks later. Mr. Woodward became as famous as his star horses. Now, whenever his name appeared in the New York papers, he was listed as a member of the 400, a society page designation that basically meant you were here before all those new money Civil War folks showed up. The Woodwards were not actually members of the 400, but their horses ran fast enough that everyone forgot. William Woodward was obsessed with bloodlines, but not just of his horses. The ease with which he moved from discussions of animals to discussions of his wife or his children or of their prospective love interest wouldn't have seemed strange to his friends and neighbors. His social circle believed nearly uniformly that people had pedigrees and bloodlines just like thoroughbreds. So, I mean, beginning in you know the early 20th century, you have uh, some of the main founders of the eugenics movement in the United States uh, really looking to thoroughbred breeding, and they're also finding uh, financial support among thoroughbred breeders. This is Brian Terrell again. He says eugenics actually grew out of the animal breeding world. Again, as an expression of this class and racial anxiety that, that was going on in the broader culture. While the main funders of eugenics research were East Side millionaires, you know, the same class of people who dominated racing, way more Americans believed it than not. It was used to target, in the name of progressive science, anyone deemed unfit in America. Immigrants, people with disabilities or mental illness, poor people, black people, country white people, anyone the elite looked down upon, including a white Virginia woman whose fight to not be sterilized made it to the highest court in the land, where she lost. 
liberal lion Oliver Wendell Holmes even voted against her. I did some rummaging in an old library and found on that thin onion skin paper that nobody really uses anymore, elaborate pedigrees of human beings. I found a chart tracking a family's musical ability. Another plotted a family's feeble-mindedness, and they were laid out like the pedigrees of Sir Galahad. Thoroughbred breeding was an important part of American eugenics in terms of both creating an intellectual foundation, but also popularizing it by performing it at the racetrack. Who's for the derby? Simple say the experts. It's Simon, Prince Simon. Placed among the Boyd Roachford string by its New York owner, William Woodward, the handsome American-bred colt stands 17 hands high, a prince among horses. By the end of the 1940s, William Woodward's horses were huge winners in America, but the holy grail for him was still winning the English Derby. In 1950, he sent the best horse in his stable across the Atlantic, a horse named Prince Simon. Led by Her Majesty, the royal party visits the paddock to look at the horses and meet old friends. The favorite American-bred Prince Simon. Here come the 25 on their way to the start. All that remain of the 372 original entries. Woodward was too old and sick to travel to England, so he sent cables asking questions about his horse's appetite, aches, and mood. On race day, Woodward and his family huddled around a radio. A mile and a half to go, and the world waiting for the answer. It's a steep six furlong climb to the bushes, with Pewter Platter and Prince Simon leading. He's the one with spots, so he's easily spotted. Exactly. Prince Simon pulled away, leading by a length, then two lengths, and then a challenger emerged. And now here's Gal Cador moving up to challenge. Now he's caught Prince Simon and passed him. No, there's the post, and Gal Cador wins by a head. Double eclipse. Prince Simon lost by a head, shorter than the distance between the assembled Woodwards and their radio. To Prince Simon and his popular owner, Mr. William Woodward, hard luck for a very gallant try. For the rest of us, home James and don't spare the horsepower. In the last few years of Woodward's life, one final hope emerged. His name was Nashua. Five and a half feet tall, he was brown with a black tail and mane. Rugged, durable, and fast the result of all those hours and years Woodward spent studying pedigrees. From the first time William saw him, he knew that this was the horse that would avenge Prince Simon and end his quest to win the English Derby. But William never got to see that happen. Did he ever win? Nashua was his big hope. And he was going to send Nashua back to England when he died. When Mr. Woodward died, his son Billy inherited millions of dollars and everything at Bel Air, the flagpole, the mansion, the barns, and of course, Nashua. Billy had no idea how to run Bel Air. All of this was new and strange. Billy had been excluded from his father's uh, horse breeding stuff. I think Billy's father wasn't a sharer. You know, he didn't want to share it with his son. He wanted to do it all himself. Like his father, Billy wanted the right wife too. For him, that didn't mean someone with a powerful name. He already had that. He wanted someone exciting, someone to make him feel confident and daring. Then he met a nightclub dancer and actress named Anne Eden. Anne had a fake name and a fake history. She told people her father was dead. He actually was a streetcar conductor, alive and well in Detroit. Anne wanted that climb. She, she was born on a poverty-stricken farm in the state of Kansas in a shack where they slaughtered the farm animals. So it was a pretty rough life. She wanted it away from that. Billy's mom, Elsie, didn't like Anne from the beginning. Elsie didn't really know the specifics of Anne's lies, but she suspected all of them. Billy brings Anne to meet his family. She dressed really carefully, and uh, the mother was just livid about it and said something about, you better take your hat off because I'm sitting behind you and I can't see, your hat's not made of glass. And she was just very haughty and she said, one look at her and I knew the whole story. They got married, like so many people do, 
running away from something and towards each other. Their relationship is so complicated that Susan wrote like a 400-page book about it, and parts of it are frankly difficult to read. Their relationship was violent. There's this picture on the back of my book of them with with the Duke and Duchess, and, and if you look at the picture closely, Anne has a black eye, her lip is bruised on the bottom, and she's hugging the um, her coat around herself because her, her body is all strained from being thrown around. It was like that for years. But no matter what happened behind closed doors, Billy and Anne would show up together at the racetrack to watch their most prized possession. Nashua won six of eight races as a two-year-old and dominated the sports pages. His early success made him one of the most hyped athletes in the country. I mean, William Woodward Sr. has spent his whole life breeding horses to get to Nashua. And then Billy just walks in and, you know, gets all the glory. It was really a major uh, experience for Billy. It really was his coming of age in a way, if he ever did come of age. People would stop him in the street, slap him on the back and say, good luck to you. And, and, and he, got, he got like 200 letters a day. The horse got more letters, but. Nashua was bred specifically by Mr. Woodward to win the English Derby. And now Billy had a choice to make. Ship Nashua to London, or run him closer to home in a race that would be broadcast into nearly every American home. That was an easy call. Nashua would run in Kentucky. 1955, 81st running of the Kentucky Derby. What was he rebelling against, do you think? I think he's rebelling against his father's indifference to him and his preference for horses (laughs) to his children. And how about a mint julep in Louisville? Love it, love it, any day of the week. You can have one, ladies. Just wait your turn, and there's the favorite. On Derby Day 1955, Billy and Ann took their places like the other owners. He must have been freaking out. Nasher on the outside, trying hard, but Shoemaker's got swaps in hand. It wasn't just the prestige of his horse on the line. There was a lot more going on. This was the day that Billy Woodward would finally become his own man, a great horseman in his own right. Swaps in Nashua, battling down the Churchill down stretch in the Kentucky Derby, and here comes the finish. That's going to be Swaps, winning a length and a half. Nashua in second, summer 10 third. When he lost, they just, they didn't, you know, they they stood separately in, in the newsreels that I saw, and they just sort of stood there. They were very unhappy. Billy wasn't willing to wait to breed another horse like his father would have done. So right there on the spot, he challenged the owner of Swaps to a rematch that summer. A match race. This was the most famous one since Seabiscuit upset the favored war admiral. Television was still new, and it spun into action, mobilizing what would become its most potent weapon, the hype machine. And now the day is at hand. Washington Park, truly the home of America's finest racing, brings the race of the century. Swaps versus Nashua. Sports Illustrated had been launched only the previous August. The very first issue featured a story on Alfred's dad and native dancer, by the way. And the new magazine kept up a steady drumbeat all summer in favor of Nashua getting his rematch. Nashua has been beaten only once in this year of 1955, and that by Swaps. The public wouldn't allow Billy out of his challenge, even if he'd wanted to. The whole country wanted to watch this race. Literally by public demand. These two great horses have been called upon to meet again. This remains the only time in history a rematch of the Kentucky Derby was staged. And at 6 o'clock in the morning, the racing fans were coming to Washington Park. They came by car, they came by train, they came by bus, they came by airplane. They came from all over America, from Cuba, from South America, from England, from Australia. Over 35,000 people gathering at Washington Park to watch this great event in American racing. I've spent a lot of time watching old horse races online. I'm kind of obsessed with them. I just sit there in the dark and watch and rewatch these flickering black and white videos. But what YouTube can't show is how many people were watching it live. CBS said 50 million people watched the race. There is no analog in modern American life. The Game of Thrones finale, which everybody was talking about, was only seen by 19 million people. And they're off. Swap spears out of the starting gate to the right. But Eddie Arcaro goes immediately to work on Nashua. And after quailing that... For just a moment, Billy and Ann Woodward were the two most famous people in the country. And it's Eddie 
Carroll now drawing away on Nashua. Nash opens up three lengths. Now it's five. And as they come to the finish line, Eddie keeps Nashua about his business with a couple of whacks of the whip and goes under the wire to win by six and a half lengths. She has won the race of the century. Anne leaned into Billy, who grinned. As a jubilant Eddie R. Carroll guides William Woodard's fine champion back to the winner's circle. The grooms took Nashua back to his barn for a rubdown and a tub of hay. Mr. and Mrs. Woodard, of course, extremely happy with Nashua, the winner. Two months later, everything the Woodwards had been building for generations fell apart. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. On October 30th, 1955, Billy and Ann went to a party at their friend's huge estate on Long Island Sound. They left their two young boys at home. Anne wore her big emerald ring, and like always, Billy made fun of her for it. They were both anxious. For weeks, a burglar had been robbing rich people on the Gold Coast, mostly stealing food from pool houses. Anne and Billy were really hopped up. They were really all both very excited about a prowler that they were going to shoot. They decided to have a, you know, they'd gone to India and hunted leopards, and they were going to shoot the prowler. They were going to hunt him down. After the party, they drove back home through the fog and the rain. They went to bed, still afraid of the prowler. She goes to her bedroom, and he goes to his. Before they turn out the lights, he takes his revolver and goes to sleep with it in his room. And she wakes up in the middle of the night, she hears something, and she grabs her shotgun. And Billy's come to the door of his bedroom. He probably heard the noise, too. So she goes out into the hallway with her gun, and she shoots wildly. And then there's Billy Woodward um, on the carpet, naked, on his stomach, not moving. And Anne is hysterical. She's just hysterical. She ran to him and she was holding him and she got all bloody. And um, she immediately grabs the phone and calls the operator. Billy died right there on that floor. Police would later discover that a prowler was, in fact, on their roof, planning on breaking in. Their friends on Long Island Sound almost immediately threw another party, as if nothing had happened. A luncheon, where the booze flowed, and Susan told me one person joked, there's only one worse thing Ann could have done, she could have murdered the horse. Nobody seemed that concerned about Ann, or the boys, or even Billy's mother Elsie. One thing was on everyone's mind. Nashua. In the wake of this, what happens to Bel Air Stud? Well, Anne wants to keep racing. She wants to keep running the Bel Air Stud. Elsie puts her foot down. Absolutely not. And she sells it. She dismantles the whole thing. And she you know, just gets rid of it. Elsie Woodward auctioned the contents of the Bel Air Mansion. I found the catalog on eBay for $25. Each page offered a lucky buyer some piece of the English manor life that William Woodward had built. 24 Queen Anne walnut dining chairs, a settee painted black and lined in gold. I tried to imagine where they might have lived in the mansion, the enormous tapestry looking down on big dinners with guests eating on bone china, some sold in mint condition, some sold with chips and minor imperfections. When everything was gone, Elsie lowered the Bel Air flag for the last time. She closed the farm and sold Nashua. Two weeks after the murder, Life magazine arrived in mailboxes and on newsstands across the country. Inside, the editors devoted 11 pages to the shooting of the century, a play on Nashua's race of the century against swaps. There are more than a dozen photos from Billy and Ann's life, including one of them hugging after the match race. 
They're both supposedly happy in the photos, but they already look old and tired. Anne especially looks like a ghost, and in the decades that followed, she'd float from place to place, wandering the earth, trying to find a home where people didn't know what she'd done. 20 years after Billy's death, she learned that Esquire was going to run another story, this one written by Truman Capote, based on her life in the shooting. This was too much for her. Anne put on all her makeup, wrote a short note asking people not to forget her, and overdosed on sleeping pills. That left the boys. The last photo in the Life magazine spread is the one I can't shake. Billy and Ann's two sons, seven-year-old Jimmy and 11-year-old Woody, are caught staring into a photographer's lens in the days after the shooting. When I look at that picture now, it makes me sad because you can see it. Everything that would happen to them in the coming decades was already written in their eyes. Jimmy's mental health, his lifelong blaming of his mother for his father's death, his losing battle against heroin, and his eventual suicide. For a long time, Woody fared better than his brother, but in 1999, he killed himself too. One of the last things he walked past in his apartment as he stepped out of his slippers and into the air were Nashua's old racing trophies. The tragedy was front page news. I remember growing up in Fort Lauderdale and asking my mother, why is Nashua's owner a big deal enough to be on the front page instead of the sports page? This is Ed Bowen. He's the former editor-in-chief of Blood Horse Magazine and the author of 19 books about thoroughbred racing. Basically, he's the racing historian. I've been calling Ed a lot, asking him questions and having him fact-check me. To be honest, I feel like he's getting a little sick of my calls, but this one felt important because he understands, maybe better than anyone else, what Billy Woodward's death really meant for horse racing. There are individual decisions that people make that have an ongoing effect. And in horse racing, a specific horse will come up and without a master plan begins to be a game changer. In 1955, the most popular horse, the most well-known horse, was Nashua. In 1955, the most famous horse in the country was suddenly on the market. When Elsie decided to sell Nashua, she was making a deeply emotional decision. Look, the truth is, she just didn't want her daughter-in-law to be the public face of the Woodward Racing Empire. Elsie's connection to Nashua was sentimental, unconcerned with money in that way that only very, very rich people can be. So she likely had no idea what would happen when that horse was put up for sale. Why was Nashua so valuable? Well, he was horse of the year. He earned almost a million dollars. His sire was Nazrua, who was one of the great stallions of the time. And because of television, he was not only very, very well known to the racing industry, but he was very famous uh, on television and uh, that incident of someone that socially prominent as Mr. Woodward being killed by his wife was a great call celeb. Then came a man named Leslie Combs. He owned a fledgling modern breeding farm named Spinthrift. He knew what a matinee idle horse would mean for his business. His ambitions popularized a practice that changed horse racing forever. Syndication. When Nashua comes on the market, Combs put together a, a syndication of a little over 1.2 million, which was a spectacular record. In racing terms, syndication just means that a horse is broken into shares, like stock. So instead of selling your horse to one really, really rich person, you sell your horse to a collection of people. This was a crucial moment in the history of the business. Syndication was about to change everything. Well, it was a very efficient uh, way of uh, having your cake and eating it, too, so to speak. The cake is owning a fancy horse. Getting a bunch of people to split the bill with you is eating it, too. Syndication itself wasn't a new idea. Mr. Woodward basically invented it when he bought Sir Galahad III with other wealthy partners. But the syndication of Nashua was different in subtle but important ways. 
These deals moved from a gentleman's agreement, made at some exclusive private Manhattan men's club, a kind of respite from business, if you will, to the exact opposite of that, cold, straight American capitalism. Almost overnight, breeding went from something rich people did to relax to something people did to get rich. Old school families began to abandon the sport, leaving horse racing in need of a new infusion of cash. Then, syndication arrived at the perfect time. The, the syndication of Nashua was a real bellwether moment that people imitated far into the future. A year later, there were six or seven Nashua yearlings for sale at auction. It's hard to explain how insane that was at the time. The most prestigious bloodlines were available on the market as opposed to just being contained and retained by the top echelon of sportsmen. Suddenly, anybody with enough money could just purchase the Woodward blood, like buying the Queen of England's china on eBay. And not just a single anyone. Many anyones could come together and buy any famous horse. That was the takeaway in the industry from Nashua syndication. The idea caught on, and the sales prices spiraled up and up. In 1967, a horse called Buckpasser went for $4.8 million, $150,000 a share. Secretariat sold in 1973 for $6 million. 32 people paid $190,000 each. Secretariat wasn't a horse anymore. He was a financial instrument. The skyrocketing prices changed the most base-level, fundamental thing about the sport. Breeding was once aimed at producing great horses to win big races. After the Nashua sale, breeding was designed to produce valuable yearlings to auction off to anybody with a checkbook. There's a real easy way to show this change. In the 30s and 40s, 75% or 15 of 20 of the Kentucky Derby winners were raced by the original owner. That doesn't mean that all of them were top echelon sportsmen like the Belmonts and Whitney's and so forth, but it indicates that there was a real emphasis on breeding to race as opposed to breeding to sell. By the 1990s, it was only two out of 10. Today, it's right at half. That's very different from the racing world of the Woodwards and the Vanderbilts. If Ann had never shot Billy, if they had never had to shut down Bel Air, so there hadn't been this big Woodward dispersal sale. In what ways would modern-day horse racing look and be different? If Billy Woodward had not been killed, Nashville probably would have gone to stud at Claiborne Farm, which is where his father kept his stallions and uh, would have been a very successful horse. Again, the number of his progeny that got into the auction market would have been considerably less than it turned out. There was always enormous change coming to horse racing before Ann shot Billy. They just ushered it in. Did you know the Woodwards at all? A little bit when I was very little. The uh, boys would ride at the same stable I rode at. This is Alfred Vanderbilt again. I mean, were you aware then of the baggage they were carrying around? Yeah. I remember the day it happened. Really? What do you remember? Uh, they didn't come to the uh, to the stable to ride the next day. And and I asked where they were, and someone said, no, something really bad happened. And I'd, I had to work to find out what it was. Only a few people even remember when the racing world was centered on the Upper East Side. One of them is Alfred. Sitting in his apartment with his mother's Louis Vuitton steamer trunk used as a table, he continues to straddle the worlds he straddled all his life. 1955 was a dividing line in American history. Albert Einstein died. Steve Jobs was born. And Alfred watched as his dad and all his dad's rich friends struggled to find their place. They had no idea what was happening. The culture shifted when the Beatles came. That, that I think, is the really the, the bellwether. And they thought it was a fad, and they thought it was kind of funny. And I remember being at my father's house and somebody using the term rock star, and he just scoffed. He just literally laughed, a rock star? Come on. And whoever it was said, oh, no, they make rather a lot of money. And then there was this little quiet in the room. 
<laughs> as that sank in, and, uh, and, and he started to think. One way of living ended, and another began. Horse racing didn't seem to have a place in this new world, where people left the family farms and moved to the city. The basic premise of racing in, in America was that you had horses representing families and representing sort of the, the agricultural heartland of the country that, that would get together and run. And they would put them at country fairs because people would come to the country fairs and they'd buy apples and they'd buy pies. And then they'd go watch the horses run and they'd make little bets to each other. Now we have a new kind of racing, one whose main purpose is money. They've lost the central focus of the sport, which is the horse, the countryside, the people going to see it. That's absolutely gone missing. Did you feel like you were there for the end of something? Oh, I, I now know I was. Yes, absolutely. What ended? I think the aristocracy in America ended. Um, when my father died, uh, I thought, well, that's, that's the last king of the sport of kings. All that was left was a long goodbye for the people who remembered. People like Alfred's dad, who was born into a world he lived long enough to see end. He called me up and asked me to come out to the track one day, and I could tell by the sound of his voice something was up, because he didn't do that often. And it was the last time that his men, his employees, brought one of his horses up from Maryland the old way. It was, it was his people doing it the old way. And he wanted me to witness it. And I thought, oh, I think it's the last one. And afterwards, I called him up and I said, was that the last time? And he said, yes. Why do you think he wanted you to see that? Uh, because it was the end of the line for him. It was the end of his life as, a, as an owner in many ways. He continued to own horses. He owned horses when he died. But, but this was the end of... So when I was three about, I woke up one day in the front seat of the car, Louis on my right, my father on my left. It's blackout, and I have no idea where we are. And there are horses getting out of vans and being led by handlers and put onto a train. So this was his stable going to Santa Anita. 100 horses, 120 men. Three in the morning, he wanted me to see it, you see. So that's why the end was so important. I saw it at the top, and then he had me see the end. Alfred's dad's world is gone. So is William Woodward's. But if you look in the stud book today, the blood of Nashua native dancer is in most of the great racehorses, and it's still being bred into new ones every year. So I contacted the farm where Mr. Woodward bred all his horses, just outside Lexington, Kentucky, in a little town called Paris. And I invited myself down. We arrived the day before breeding season began. We stopped at a farm that was tucked in on the leafy Ironworks Pike to pay our respects to a long dead horse. We went to visit Nashua's grave. That's Billy and Ann's horse buried right there. If you walk like six steps over here, there's a horse called Raise a Native. And Raise a Native is out of Alfred Vanderbilt's father's horse, Native Dancer. Native Dancer is buried in Maryland. But six steps away from Nashua's grave is the grave of Native Dancer's most famous son, Ray's a Native. He was born in 1961 and was undefeated as a two-year-old colt. When he stopped racing, he was bought by a breeding syndicate in Lexington, and that's when he becomes important to our story. Because after that, his blood was bred into horse after horse and outlasted all the great racing empires. There, there's no attribution to humans on these tombstones, no, right? No, the, the word Vanderbilt does not appear. The word Woodward does not appear. And like, what's interesting is in these two graves, you have the buried history of that whole New York racing world, and you have 
the modern horse racing world we live in now. And it was absolutely created when we went from Native Dancer in Nashua to here. Next time on Bloodlines. What's, that's where Kentucky Derby winner comes from. Yeah, yeah, you never know. I took one look at that pedigree and it terrified me. Absolutely terrified me. The breakdowns at Santa Anita were a terrible thing, but I hope these animal rights activists can see it's part of our American culture. Right? <laughs> Nothing ever changes in this business fast. This is the slowest moving industry you ever want to see. Bloodlines is hosted and reported by me, Wright Thompson. It was made in collaboration with Pineapple Street Studios. It was produced by Jess Hackle and Courtney Harrell. Our senior producers at ESPN are Eric Neal and Mike Philbrick. Our editors are Joel Lovell and Maddie Sprung-Kaiser, with help from Jonathan Minivar. Mixing by Hannes Brown. Our researcher is Diane Hodson. Our fact checker is Dale Brauner. The executive producers at Pineapple Street are Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky. The executive producers at ESPN are Connor Schell, Rob King, Allison Overholt, and Patricia Mays. Production management and licensing by Katherine Sankey. Our ESPN fact checker is George Milkoff. Additional production support from Eric Paul and Linda Powder. The ESPN audio team includes Tom Ricks, Vice President, Audio Digital Strategy and Marketing, Megan Judge, Director of Audio Distribution and Marketing, Pete Giannassini, who is Senior Director of Audio Production, and Ryan Graner, Director of Digital Audio Operations. Special thanks to Barry Finkel, Eric Mennel, Henry Malofsky, Jeffrey Reed, Maria Robbins-Somerville, and especially Ed Bowen, who gave us so much of his time and insight and the fruits of his life's work. We really appreciate him. We'd like to thank PJ Clarks, Miss Ada in Brooklyn, the Wyeth Hotel, Mike's Deli in the Bronx, and of course, the bodega across the street from Pineapple Street. God bless you, gentlemen. There are no bacon, egg, and cheeses in Mississippi, at least not like that. Big appreciation to the David Black Agency for letting me steal their office. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time for the finale of Bloodlines. If you, a friend, or a loved one are having thoughts of suicide, you can contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255.